According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John chapter 20. Simultaneously. Like that. All right? If you have uh, a paper Bible, if you're still using that first century technology of ink on paper, bound in some kind of a dead animal skin with sewing and thread, in any event. Um, these upcoming classes, starting today, we're, we're dealing with the resurrection, we're dealing with Easter Sunday and the, the fact that uh, Jesus uh, does not stay dead once he's uh, dead. Uh, and he's buried. Uh, he, we've had him now dead and buried for a number of weeks, uh, even uh, to the point of discussing what it was he did while he was dead and buried, uh, and how he went and uh, proclaimed victory in the victorious proclamation. He went and preached to the saints in pri- or to the uh, departed spirits in prison and the the, uh, the disobedient spirits that he went to preach to. Uh, all of these we've been dealing with for the past couple of weeks. Uh, today, we're going to move past that and move on to the next episode, the next section, actually. We'll take some time to lay the groundwork. I don't know how far we'll get with it today. And uh, and then no class next week. So whatever we get to today, uh, we'll have to just get as far as we can and leave it for uh, two weeks from now. Um, or rapture pending. I, I really don't want to be here in two weeks. I want to, I want to be with the Lord. So um, anyway, if he leaves us here, then we'll come back in two weeks and continue. But this uh, this is possibly one of the most difficult of all the events we've ever done as far as the harmonization is concerned because we've, it's recorded four times. It's recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the uh, the women that go to the tomb and uh, the stones rolled away and uh, the different accounts are pretty different. And because they are so divergent, uh, there is a variety of ways that people have found to reconcile them. Remember, no scripture is false. All scripture is God-breathed. God is a God of truth, so everything that's recorded in every gospel account is true and accurate as far as that account records it. All right. It's only when we try to reconcile those accounts that we try to synchronize what is inherently non-synchronizable or asynchronous, as it were. We know that they're all true because God inspired all four accounts, but the exact connection between them uh, leaves room for debate or room for disagreement or room for um, possible adjustments in our in our synchronizing, all right? And as long as we're relaxed about it, I think we're fine. Uh, if we try to get dogmatic and say, well, it has to be this way, it has to be this way, that's not fair. That's not legitimate. It doesn't have to be that way. There are other ways that they can be uh, harmonized, uh, and we should at least be humble enough to to recognize that. So we're going to do a lot of flipping. I think uh, we're going to be constantly between Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 20. Um, Possibly it's helpful for you in the sense that these tend to be the last chapters of their books, except for John. Uh, Matthew 28 is the last chapter of Matthew. Uh, Mark 16 is the last chapter of Mark. And in fact, the last true verses of Mark that we uh, can be certain of down through verse 8. Uh, verses 9 and following are questionable when it relates to the manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Luke 24, the last chapter in Luke. So as far as flipping and finding these places, you're just basically aiming for the last chapter. Uh, not so in John. John 20 is not the last chapter in John. We, we have uh, chapter 21 that follows John chapter 20, and there's more detail that comes uh, in the post-resurrection ministry of, uh, of Jesus after chapter 20. And so we can be thankful that there is a 21st chapter in uh, the Gospel of John. All right, so that's where we're going to be. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer, ask the Father to bless our thinking, set aside distractions, and uh, bless our time together in the Word today, shall we pray. Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your Word. It is uh, it's our privilege to be here today, Father, to uh, receive once again your manifold grace. Um, Father, the privilege we have to assemble together is a grace provision. We didn't earn or deserve this. 
But Father, you have given us your word and you've blessed us with a local church where the word of God goes forth. And so we thank you on this day that we're going to once again study to show ourselves approved. That Father, we are here, we are diligent, we are here uh, under the filling of the Holy Spirit, we are here with an attitude of humility. Father, we are here with a desire to learn that we might live and glorify your Son. And so, Father, uh, we call upon you now to manifest your faithfulness through the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Open the eyes of our understanding. Give us the ears to hear. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, before we uh, actually start tearing into these verses, um, I'm going to combine the first four episodes into a single outline of development. We've done this before in combining two or three. Uh, the most we've ever attempted to combine in one shot is four. Um, I could have done five or six here, and I thought, well, that's a bit much. I uh, could have dropped it off to two or even one, uh, but then that doesn't seem to be worth it to have separate outlines for, for two or even one, because they do seem, these four at least, seem to really be uh, intertwined. And you'll, you'll see that as we start to read all four of the gospel accounts, as we start to synthesize and harmonize the details. Uh, let me start with the website where anyone can go to and uh, obtain the harmony if you don't have your own personal harmony of the Gospels uh, tucked into the back of your Bible. (laughs) All right. Uh, This is what we've been working on since 2004. More than seven years now we've been following this harmony of the Gospels. Uh, But as I pointed, when we got to the burial of Jesus, the tomb sealed, and the women watch, that's episode 39, 40, and 41, and that brings to a close that section of the harmony. Okay, Remember, we've been talking about how this harmony is broken down into different sections or segments, all the way from uh, the very beginning, introductions to Jesus Christ with three episodes there, the birth, infancy, and adolescence of Jesus and John the Baptist, and there's 17 episodes there. There's the truths about John the Baptist with four episodes there. Way back when, when we taught this, we actually combined that with the uh, beginning of Jesus' ministry, because there's 12 episodes there, and then the Galilean ministry. Once you reach the Galilean ministry, now you're into really the largest section of, of our Savior's ministry. More events, more time, more months go by, more episodes. Most of the, our familiar uh, miracles are done in the Galilean ministry. Most of our familiar uh, parables, the events, walking on water, all the different things that we tend to think of from uh, studying Jesus growing up, most of those occur in the Galilean ministry. 56 episodes there in the Galilean ministry, which takes us then to the last Judean and Perean ministry of Jesus. Remember this? Uh, starting with the Feast of Tabernacles. When you reach that Feast of Tabernacles, you're talking about the fall uh, six months out, right before his crucifixion. He's going he's gonna, to uh, be crucified on Passover. He's going to be crucified on April 3rd. All right. So when you get to this uh, last Judean and Prean ministry, you're talking about the final six months of his life, that he had roughly three and a half years of public ministry, and three of them are complete by the time you wrap up the Galilean ministry. And there's only the final six months remaining. So uh, the last Judean and Prean ministry, you've got uh, 42 events there, leaving us with the uh, resurrection of Lazarus and the uh, plot to kill him again, (laughs) right? Because he just won't stay dead and uh, so forth. And then we reach where we've been recently now, Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem. And it starts with episode one, the triumphal entry, Palm Monday, right? Not Sunday, Palm Monday, the triumphal entry in Nisan 10, where the Passover lamb is selected. Monday, Nisan 10, that would be March 30th of 33 AD with a triumphal entry. And so we've been basically in the Passion Week ever since we got to this segment of the Life of Christ series. From the uh, triumphal entry all the way down to the cross and then the events attending Jesus' death, his burial, the sealing of the tomb, the watching of the women. Once we get through that 41st event, we're done. We're done with the uh, Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem. Now, the last little bit. The finish line is in sight. <laughs> the Life of Christ series that we started in January of 2004 is, uh, we can see the finish line. The final portion of our harmony is the resurrection through the ascension. 
the resurrection through the ascension. And there are 13 events, supposedly. Although um, 10 and 11 will go by fairly quickly because they're not even in the Gospels. Uh, 10 and 11 deal with the appearances. So let's take a look at it. Event 1, women visit the tomb. That's where we are today. This would be Sunday, April 5th, 33 AD at dawn, at sunrise. Even a little bit before sunrise, we're going to start to see the earthquake and the, the fear of the guards was before the sun came up. And uh, the women actually arrived before the sun came up. Women visit the tomb. Uh, Peter and John see the empty tomb. This is recorded in, in John chapter 20. They actually have a foot race to get there. But they go because it's been reported to them that the tomb is empty. It's been reported to them that the stone has been rolled away. Mary Magdalene comes and tells them that the stone has been rolled away. She does not know where the body is. And so Peter and John take off in their foot race and start running to the tomb. Event three, uh, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. All right, and this is where we have to we have to work on reconciling these accounts because was Mary at the tomb seeing the stone roll away? Did she run and get the disciples? Did she then follow them back to the tomb? Evidently, uh, because now she's standing outside the tomb when when uh, Jesus appears to her, she thinks he's the gardener. All right, until he says to her Mary, and then she. Uh, I guess he had a very particular distinctive way to say Mary, all right? And as soon as he says Mary in that tone of voice or with that expression, the scales are removed from her eyes and she knows that that's the Lord. She falls at his feet. She grabs hold of him. She says, Rabboni. She starts worshiping him. And he says, stop touching me. Stop clinging to me. I've not yet ascended to my father. And we'll have to deal with that. How many times does Jesus ascend? That'll be uh, something that we'll deal with. Also, the fourth episode, Jesus' appearance to the other women. There were other women besides Mary. There was the other Mary. And uh, there was uh, Salome. There was the mother of of James and John. There was also um, uh, a lady there named Joanna. There were multiple women that were present, uh, some of whom we don't even know their names based on uh, the text of what we'll be seeing there. Now, this is the order that A.T. Robertson put it, you know, these events, in his harmony, all right? And basically using the Gospel of Matthew there, when you look at the Matthew column, you see verses 1 through 10. But then there's a bit of a redundancy because for episode 4, Jesus' appearance to the other women, there's a redundancy there. It lists Matthew 28, verses 9 and 10. You see, there's a redundancy. Verses 9 and 10 are included in the 1 through 10 of episode 1. You see that? And so there's some redundancy there. But it does help to put it into a sequence. And then the guards reporting of the resurrection is episode 5, when the Roman guards go and report uh, back to the uh, Sanhedrin. Uh, That's recorded in Matthew 28, verses 11 through 15. And then a tremendous gap until you get to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. So if all you're doing is looking at that sequence in the Gospel of Matthew, you've got event 1, event 4, event 5, and event 12 are the only ones that Matthew records. And that's the sequence of it there. Pretty Using Matthew as a sequence, it keeps it there in that particular order. Likewise with Mark, verses 1 through 8, verses 9 through 11, 12 and 13, 14, 15 through 18, 19, and 20. Now that Mark column we're going to have to talk about because Mark's a problem. Anything after verse 8 is open to discussion. Okay, The ending of the Gospel of Mark is not agreed to on the part of a lot of manuscript scholars. Does it end at verse 8? Does it end at verse 9? Does it end at verse 20? How many endings to Mark are there? Well, in the manuscript record, there's about four different endings to the Gospel of Mark. So, Fortunately, um, we're not dependent upon Mark for any of that. Uh, all of those episodes, episode, um, all of these episodes are recorded in other Gospels, mainly Luke uh, or John, as we see it there. Okay, in Luke, again, you got the sequence one through eleven, uh, verse twelve, all by itself goes well with John twenty. Um, the appearance to the disciples on the Emmaus road. Great story. We love the story of the Emmaus Road disciples, right? Uh, on the Road to Emmaus is, is a great good seed book. We love the, the On the Road to Emmaus, and, and it's, a, it's a great episode. It's only recorded in Luke, and a disputed reference to it in Mark, okay? Uh, I'll just tell you right now, I, I, don't, I don't believe nine through 16, uh, verses 9 through 20 were written by Mark. They're not original to his gospel, 
All right. So whoever wrote them and whenever they got added in and so forth uh, was not a part of the original manuscript of the Gospel of Mark. But we don't need those verses anyway because the material is covered in, in other Gospel records. Uh, so the road to Emmaus is in Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. Um, when he appears to the disciples without Thomas present, then he returns again to the disciples. Now Thomas is there. Okay, And then uh, he appears to seven disciples while they're out there fishing and they have a uh, breakfast together there on the shore. That's all recorded in John 21. All right, so anyway, take, uh, take advantage of that. If you don't have your own printout, uh, you know, it's just sitting there on the website minding its own business. And if you can't uh, get it or print it off for yourself, let me know. We'll, we'll print one off for you. We used to keep a stack of them in the hallway, I think. Are they still out there? Okay, four copies. Okay, good. Good, good, good. We'll uh, get those to you if you uh, still need those. All right. As I say, we're looking at four chapters simultaneously. And uh, this is a screen I've been staring at for a long time now (laughs) and uh, looking at these. Also, I'm going to reference a couple of other texts, including one by a guy named Cheney. Let me exit that one and maximize this one. This is a uh, book called Jesus Christ, The Greatest Life. Uh, The author's name is Cheney. It's actually a later edition of some earlier works like, uh, um, see if they're listed here, Jesus Christ, The Greatest Life. Uh, Before that, it was published as The Life of Christ in Stereo and uh, also The Greatest Story. And these were kind of blended together to form the current edition. Uh, But if you do a search for uh, for Johnston Cheney, you're going to find it. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a good uh, harmony, uh, but unlike other harmonies, this one actually takes all of the text in all four Gospels and then literally blends those words into, uh, into a narrative, and to whereby not one word is omitted. In, I mean, if they're duplicated, then they're not duplicated. But, but if, if, if an expression occurs in any of those four Gospels, that expression occurs in this blended text. And so when you read on the resurrection here, this, uh, and I made a, a printout we'll get photocopies of for you. Um, as you read through this narrative of the resurrection, you're going to have a blended uh, story of all four of these Gospels, of Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 20. They're all going to be blended into this narrative. And it's very readable. It's very enjoyable. And uh, it might be a little out of order from how we're going to teach it here, but hey, it's, it's still worth reading. It's still uh, an excellent attempt to, to, uh, to blend all these different accounts. All right. Well, let's start with, uh, how about let's start with Matthew. Might as well. It's the first gospel after all. Matthew 28. Remember where chapter 27 ended, the uh, priests are terrified because... Uh, they seem to be really bothered by the lies of a liar. <laughs> All right. And uh, so Pilate says, well, you've got a guard. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and they made the grave secure along with the guard. They set a seal on the stone. So no tampering with this grave. Uh, and Roman guards posted to uh, keep the disciples from stealing the body. That's what they're afraid of. They say, we need to secure this grave. And... Uh, Verse 63 of chapter 27. Sir, we remember when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I am to rise again. After three days. Keep that expression in mind. After three days. What does that mean? Does that mean on the fourth day? They say after three days. No, it means on the third day. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Not until the fourth day, until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. Why are they all concerned about that? Okay, it's interesting. I believe these unbelievers are giving more credibility to the Lord's teaching than even his disciples are. His disciples don't understand the resurrection teaching he was giving them. Not until they're standing in the empty tomb looking down and looking at the burial cloth. 
All right, but that third day we're going to see is critical. That's what we're dealing with on Easter Sunday, on Resurrection Sunday. All right, it's the third day. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the third day. So they went and made the grave secure. Along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came and looked at uh, to look at the grave. Remember, there's a bunch of Marys around. There's uh, Mary, the mother of our Savior, is a third Mary beyond these two Marys. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, is who we saw standing at the cross. And then uh, the uh, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, which was Mary's sister, uh, cousin of uh, of our Savior. All right. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. A severe earthquake had occurred prior to them arriving at the grave. Prior to that, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing like white as snow. The guard shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Now everything in 2 through 4 happens before verse 1. It happens before Mary and the other Mary came to look at the grave. Then verse 5, the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know what you are looking for, uh, that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly. And tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. All right, so here's, here's a basic outline. Women show up. Women show up. And uh, there's no mention of spices and stuff here. We'll get that in another gospel. But... but the same basic order is going to to follow in in uh, all of these records. There'll be things that disappear. There'll be things that aren't mentioned, but the same basic order. Women show up. All right. Stone is already rolled away. They didn't push the stone away. They couldn't have pushed the stone away if they wanted to. All right. Women show up, and uh, the the tomb is empty. And the word here is go and tell the disciples who haven't bothered to show up yet. Uh, that he has risen, just like he said, he's gone ahead of you into Galilee. He will meet with you there. All right. Now, let me hold off on 9 and 10. Well, let me read 9 and 10. All right. We left off with the verse 8. They, uh, they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy, ran to report it to the, his disciples, and behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. Now, we don't know where verse 9 happens. They take off running in verse 8. At some point, away from the tomb and before they reach the disciples, um, they meet Jesus. Okay, And we're going to discuss where might that be and, and why. He tells them basically the same thing the angel tells them. So why did he stop their running? Why did he interrupt them? Okay. Again, what did the angel tell them? Go tell the disciples that Jesus has risen. He's going ahead of you to Galilee and, and there you will see him. That's that's what the angel said. Jesus tells them the exact same thing. So behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Now that's a bit of a puzzle. You know, he tells them the same thing the angel told them. And they were running to go tell the disciples. So why does he pop in and tell them the same thing the angels told them? And uh, tell them to quit clinging to me. Well, it doesn't say quit clinging to me. That's a different gospel record. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Go and take word of my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Well, weren't they doing that? Isn't that what they were doing when he shows up and says, go and tell them the same thing the angel told you to tell them? All right. And then there's a different episode there. You move on to the soldiers. Uh, while they were on their way, some of the guards came into the city. We'll deal with that when we get to that particular episode. All right, flip over to Mark. Mark 16. Again, chapter 15 ends with the burial. And... 
Joseph of Arimathea here is going to bury the body. He actually is going to forsake his own Passover observance because in touching this corpse, he is no longer ceremonially clean. Um, And so in 1547, we read uh, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. These are the same two Marys that were mentioned in Matthew. And so when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome, that's the mother of James and John, the sons of thunder. This is Mrs. Zebedee. All right, Salome is Mrs. Zebedee, the sister of uh, Mary, the former virgin. All right, they brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they were saying to, so the sun had already risen. There's, there are distinctions in the terms. In, in some record, the, the, the sun had not yet risen. In some, the sun had risen. In some, it's still early. Some, it's still dark. And so we're left to wonder, I, I'm thinking maybe Mary Magdalene actually came twice and then came the second time with the other women, but came the first time alone. And these are some of the things that you ponder and consider. All right. They were uh, saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? You know, we've got these spices, but we're, you know, we're, we're just women. How are we going to, it takes men. It takes about six men to roll away this heavy stone. Okay. Four to six men. Uh, it's, it's a heavy stone. You know, three women just aren't going to do it. And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled away already, though it was extremely large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going, uh, it's an interesting expression, isn't it? And uh, it's part of the testimony we have of Mark's close association with Peter. Um, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Now, that's a very interesting way to end your gospel, but I believe that's where Mark ended his gospel. That it, the gospel of Mark ends with verse 8 of chapter 16. We'll talk about that as we look at some of the other uh, aspects of that. All right, Luke 24. Luke 24. All right, so again, the story is basically the same. Early in the morning, women arrive. The stone's already rolled away. An angel says... Go uh, tell the disciples Jesus is alive and he's waiting for you in Galilee. And they take off. A lot of running in this chapter. Are you tired yet? All right, Luke 24. Luke 24. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. Now, who's they? They, 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 they. You back up to verse 56. They returned and prepared spices and perfumes. They, verse 55, the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. So they're unnamed women at this point. We don't actually reach names until verse 10 of chapter 24. They were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. So multiple women, unnamed, and uh, these that are named. Now here we've got Mary and the other Mary. We don't have Salome mentioned. We do have Joanna mentioned. Now some people try to equate Joanna with uh, Salome, but there's no need for that. Um, Joanna, uh, no. No. Now, there's other women that are mentioned here in verse 10. That would include Salome. And we have uh, really no disputes there. All right, back to verse 1 then. On the first day of the week, early dawn, came to the tomb bringing spices, which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Same detail, every record so far. Women show up, the stone's already moved. That's helpful. And they, uh, But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. And so 
we've got divergent details now. Was it just one angel uh, with a shining appearance? Was it one angel looking like a young man? Was it two angels? All right. We've got divergent details. And this is why, again, we have to blend them and puzzle them together. And we've done this before in the sense of, you know, Legion wasn't the only demoniac there, but he was the one named and he was the one that spoke. There were actually two demoniacs there in that, in that uh, cemetery. Same thing here. When an angel appears, or two angels appear, these Gospels aren't wrong to record an angel. All right. So two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? My favorite verse in this whole episode. I love this verse. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. So they had prior teaching, but prior teaching did not come alive to them until they were standing here in the grave. It's going to be the same thing with Peter and John. They had the teaching, but now it's made real to them. They remembered his words. And they returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. There were more disciples besides the eleven. Okay, Remember, Judas has already committed suicide by now. The, the apostles, number 11. Also, all the rest. That would include Matthias. That would include um, the others that were among those that had followed Jesus from the baptism to the resurrection. All right. Now, they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. Also, the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles, but these words appeared to them as nonsense, right? Typical men. <laughs> what is it? You know, what are you babbling about? What? what? All right. And uh, they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. No mention of John there or the foot race, but just Peter running by himself. Okay. So is it the same as the foot race with John, or did Peter actually make two trips? That's part of what we'll, I believe he made two trips, and we'll uh, discuss that when we start putting these in order. Okay. Still with me? John chapter 20. Let's get the one that's the most different. John chapter 20. Remember, written decades after the Synoptic Gospels were written. The fourth Gospel, written years later. And many of the details we've seen throughout the Gospel of John have been uh, unique uh, with information not contained in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark, while it was still dark, and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. All right, so um, a lot of folks think that she came by herself, that she came before the sun came up, she came while it was still dark. Uh, and then when she comes again with the other women, that that's the second time that she got there. Um, I, 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 I originally thought that, but I think the use of we do not know where they have laid him it gives away the fact that there were other women present with her, even though she's the only one named here in this, uh, in this uh, chapter. Um, she is the only one named, but she does say we in verse 2. And when the women are approaching in the both the Mark account and the Luke account, they're debating among themselves, uh, how are we going to roll the stone away? How is it we're going to roll the stone away? Well, if Magdalene was already there first and saw the stone was rolled away, it makes no sense for her to be talking to the other women about, gee, how are we going to roll the stone away? Okay, So I believe that, uh, that Mary only comes, she doesn't have her own individual uh, pre-dawn trip, that she's there with the other women, even uh, though they're not mentioned here in this chapter. And again, there's the clue, we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. Remember who the other disciple is? 
the other disciple, the uh, Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. This, this is constant throughout the whole gospel record. It's John himself. John does not name himself in his own gospel. He's recorded countless times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but in the gospel of John, he never refers to himself. It's always, you know, in the third person, the other disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the disciple who was reclining on his breast, or the, you know, the sons of Zebedee, but he won't name his own name in his own gospel. We know he's the youngest, we know he lives the longest, and we see that here. You know, old man and young man racing to the tomb, okay? (laughs) Old man doesn't get there as quick as the young guy does, okay? We don't have to illustrate, but if uh, Bob and I walked outside here and raced to the post office, uh, you know, Bob would get there first. Of course, I would get in the Mustang and probably beat him there. All right. So the two were running together. And the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Now, they get here, and where's the other women? They're not mentioned. Where's the angel? Not mentioned. Where are the Roman guards and all this? Not mentioned. Okay. Last time we saw the Roman guards, they, they were struck dead, or they were struck as if dead. They fell to the ground as if dead. Okay. We don't even see them get up and walk away until after uh, the women have come and gone. All right. So, um, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came, huffing and puffing, finally arrives, following him and entered the tomb. So he doesn't just stop at the door. That's not Peter's style. <laughs> you know, Peter, he's, he's grabbing swords and chopping off ears and, and uh, you know, barges right on in. And uh, entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered, and he saw and believed. He saw and believed. Now we're going to spend some time with this, because you look at that expression, pistuo, the word to believe, he saw and believed. Does this mean that he was an unbeliever? All through three and a half years of following Jesus and reclining on his breast and loving Jesus and Jesus loving him. Does that mean he wasn't saved until this day? Not at all. Not at all. But it's a great and powerful reminder that even once we are saved, we continue to believe. We continue to walk by faith. We continue to claim promises. We continue to have testings whereby we either believe or don't believe based upon what's been revealed to us and how it is that we're walking according to, uh, according to what's been taught. So the, uh, the necessity for additional belief after you're saved is critical. The, the tragedy of the unbelief of the believer. What happens when a believer stops walking by faith? What happens when, uh, when you grow weak in faith? See. All right. For they as yet did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. They'd been taught, but they didn't understand it. Didn't want to understand it. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. So I don't know if she was running along behind Peter or she finally made her way back there. Um, she, maybe she walked, you know, who knows. There's, um, she's, she's there, though, at the point that Peter and John depart. Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. Now she's going to do the same thing that John did. Not going to go in right away, just going to stoop and look in. And she saw two angels in white. Well, how'd they get in there? Peter and John were just in there and didn't see these guys. She saw two angels in white, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now notice, there's none of this, uh, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? Uh, I know who you're looking for. You're looking for Jesus who was crucified. Behold, he is risen. He's go and report to the disciples that, uh, that he's gone ahead of them into Galilee. None of that to Mary Magdalene. Okay? All of that was to the other women, not to Mary Magdalene. She gets the question, why are you weeping? Her question is uh, considerably different than 
the statements made to the other women. And the response is interesting as well. And the personal appearance of Jesus here is unique as well. So when she had said this, uh, they have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. And, uh, you know, still believing him to be dead. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. So she actually doesn't get into the tomb. She was looking in. She saw these two men in there. They asked her the question. She answers these men. She stands up. She turns around. And here's the gardener. Well, supposing him to be the gardener, right? Woman, why are you weeping? That's the same question the other two were asking her. Same question. Woman, why are you weeping? Only this time, the words are in red. <laughs> All right, notice that? Because um, this, is, this is actually Jesus speaking. She saw Jesus, but did not know that it was Jesus. And you can't see red words when uh, they're just speaking to you. And so, uh, but again, the question is repeated. Isn't that great? You didn't get the answer right the last time. Let's ask again. All right. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Now, she didn't recognize his voice in the first statement. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Okay. So that's actually an addition to the why are you weeping question. He adds a second component to that. Whom are you seeking? Um, But as soon as he says Mary, one word, her name, Mary. And whatever way he said it, whatever tone he used, whatever, uh, you know, my sister's name Mary, and I probably call her that in a certain tone of voice. I like to ask her uh, how her garden's growing. Uh, I like to ask her, uh, uh, you know, Mary, Mary, quite contrary. I ask her about her little lamb. And uh, anyway, her garden's dead and her little lamb ran away. Those are her standard responses when, when I ask her that. But, you know, I can say Mary, and she knows it's me, and I don't have to say this is me calling. And here's the Lord who says Mary, and she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher, and Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend, not, not I'm going to Galilee and I'll meet you there, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. So this is a different message besides go to Galilee, I'll meet you there. This is now, I ascend to the Father. My Father and your Father, my God and your God. So Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and he had said these things to her. All right. We'll stop there at verse 18 of John chapter 20. Well, got a lot to cover, don't we? <laughs> okay, uh, let's start with the day of the week. Let's see, I've already done that. I've run through the, uh, I forgot I put that in the slideshow. I could have just shown you that. Anyway, but you have the harmony. We uh, looked at that from the website. It's the same uh, It's the same harmony we looked at before. It's just colored because of the slideshow. All right, let's talk about the first day of the week. Let's rejoice over this first day of the week. The first day of the week provides for a reality far greater than the Sabbath doctrine ever could. The first day of the week provides for a reality far greater than the Sabbath doctrine ever could. We are not Sabbath keepers as church-age saints. We don't worship on the seventh day of the week as Israel did in the Old Testament. Our the Lord's day is the first day of the week. Okay? And there's reasons for this. And the doctrine behind the seventh day is different from the doctrine behind the first day. And our reality is far greater than simply the concept of rest in creation. <clears throat> the first day of the week provides for a reality far greater than the Sabbath doctrine ever could. And we understand, of course. Creation portrayed the seventh day as a day of rest. 
Creation portrayed the seventh day as a day of rest. I would add to that a reflection upon the goodness of all that God does. All right? A reflection upon the goodness of all that God does. What are you supposed to do on the Sabbath day? You're supposed to rest from your labors, but you're also supposed to do what? Reflect upon the goodness of all that God does. It's a day of worship. It's a day of of, uh, focus on God, on His Word, on on uh, spiritual things you set aside the secular things so that you can devote yourself to the spiritual things this is what sabbath is all about genesis 2 verses 2 and 3 exodus 20 verses 8 through 11 don't want to spend a ton of time on this but it's at least worth a quick look at it genesis chapter 2 We've got the uh, day-by-day accounts in chapter 1. And God saw all that he had made. Behold, it was very good. All that he saw made in those six uh, days of, of making and creating. Behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Chapter 2 then. Thus the heavens and all the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. So there's a pattern here. On day seven, he deliberately does not engage in creative work or any work. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. So there is a doctrine related to the seventh day that's associated with God's intention, his purpose, his design, that he himself allowed this to be a pattern for humanity. Remember, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. All right? So the seventh day, God completed his work, and he blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Blessed it and sanctified it. So why don't we observe it today? God blessed it and God sanctified it. Are we wrong for not coming on Saturday? Did the Seventh-day Adventists have it right? Why do we, why weren't we here on Saturday? Why do we show up on Sunday? Why is that our main assembly for the week? You know, why, uh, why do we sing hymns on Sunday but not Wednesday? Why, uh, why do I wear the suit and tie on Sunday and, and uh, not on other days? What, what's going on? What's, why is Sunday different? Because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. We get over to Exodus, and we find it is codified in the law. Exodus chapter 20 is one of the Ten Commandments. By the way, it's the only one that's not restated in the New Testament. It's the only one that you cannot find a church age imperative related to our own obligations. Obviously, we were not to be idol worshipers. Obviously, we're not to murder and lie and and fornicate. And all those things that are in the other nine commandments, they are repeated in the New Testament. But nowhere in the New Testament are we told to observe the Sabbath. Okay? And if anything, we're going to see that the significance on the Lord's Day means that day after day, as long as it's called today, the Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God is our daily reality. Okay, I'm giving it away now, but that's what it is. When you uh, evaluate the Lord's Day and you evaluate the Sabbath rest for the Melchizedek priesthood in the church age, as uh, detailed in the book of Hebrews. So, uh, Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, verse 8 says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Again, God sanctified it and blessed it. We have to sanctify it. We have to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your works. There's your secular work. This is your, uh, your uh, vocation. This is your employment. This is your, uh, your you know, laboring and toiling under the sun uh, with the thorns and the thistles and all the rest. This is your career. This is temporal life. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. And boy, that's the phrase that the Pharisees embraced and turned into something that Jesus didn't recognize. Okay? You know, they started defining what work is. And, uh, and uh, all to the, the nitty-gritty of, of stupidity. All right? As far as lifting up something and how heavy it could be and handing it to somebody else and carrying it from indoors to outdoors. All these other things. It had nothing to do with work 
had nothing to do with your pursuit of secular income or the pursuit of your temporal life living circumstances in any event. The seventh day is a Sabbath. You shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made heavens and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Since he did that, we must do that. We follow his example. We follow his example. We, we don't work. We rest and we reflect upon the goodness of what God has done. Okay, that's what he was doing. That's what we're going to do. All right. But now, which one of you, if his ox falls into a pit on the Sabbath day, will not lift it out? Okay, everybody does. And that's not work. That's, that's, that's just common sense. That's just, you know, he fell in the pit. Get him out of there. And it's not work. You're not pursuing your career advancement. You're not... Uh, now, if you if you put in eight days of the eight hours of the office and bring in the income and and engage in your business dealings and your phone calls and all the other well that's work, okay? You fail to sanctify that day. We're setting that day apart. We're saying this day is different. This day is different, okay? And it's not I'm not I'm not being a legalist. I'm not being a uh, uh, you know now you, people can be a legalist with it, but I'm saying. Um, you know, I'm I'm in a I'm in a suit and tie because this day is different. This is the Lord's day. I am assembled together with my flock, with my church family. All right. I'm not. It's not a. It's not a playground. It's not a park. I'm not at the beach. I'm not. You know. I, and, and so when I'm when I'm here, I'm testifying to this world. All right. And, and on the way home, I'm if I stop at Olive Garden or whatever with my wife with my kids, then we're a public testimony. This world doesn't understand it. Oh, there's those Bible thumping church people. Okay, well, yeah. There's fewer and fewer of us anymore that are demonstrating that. <laughs> so there it is. Okay. Anyway, why is this day different? The the Jews were taught to answer that question to their children. Why is this day different? Why is this holiday not like other days? Why on this day do we, you know, the the ritual that they that they incorporated within their Passover observance? And the child would ask the father this, and the father would answer. Here's why this day is different. This day is different because, and, and gave the doctrinal significance for Passover. All right? So I take that same question and I ask on the Lord's day. A Christian child could ask their Christian father on the Lord's day, why is this day different? Okay? Why is this day different? Resurrection. We go, there's something beyond the seventh day. What is beyond seven? Day eight. The eighth day. The first day of the new week. In numerology, eight is the number of new things. Eight is the number of... of uh, it was eight souls that came through the ark, uh, that came through the flood. The number eight speaks of new life, speaks of new things. It's the eighth day. God didn't stay... Did God, was God resting on the eighth day? No. He, he rested, thank you. He rested on the seventh day, and then he went right back to work again, didn't he? He set the pattern. The pattern isn't, you know, rest forever. Rest for the one day. And then it's back to work again. So resurrection teaches the eighth day in its significance as a day for bearing witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All four of these gospel records, there's divergent details in all of them, but there is identical detail in this point. It was the first day of the week. It was Sunday morning. All right, Sunday morning. And it was sunrise, okay? Which le leads to all these sunrise services and various Easter uh, Sunday, uh, you know, traditions and so forth. You'll note I have never in 17 years of pastoring conducted a sunrise service. Not that I'm hostile to the idea. I just haven't done it. You want to do it next year? Okay. I, I don't know. Most of these folks have hard time getting there by 11 o'clock <laughs> you know if they get up if they make it here by 9 30 then uh anyway and actually for my first four years i was always working i didn't get off to uh, work until after sunrise got home at 7 30 or 7 45 and showered put on a suit and made it to church in time for uh that 9 30 hour 
Right, all four Gospels are, uni- are uh, unanimous in this. Matthew 28, 1, Mark 16, 2, Luke 24, 1, John 20, verse 1. Every Gospel record testifies it was the first day of the week. The third day after his crucifixion. This day became known as the Lord's Day. Point C. This day became known as the Lord's Day. It became the primary Christian day of assembly. The Lord's Day. It became the primary Christian day of assembly. Acts 20 and verse 7. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2. Revelation 1 and verse 10. Take all three of those scriptures, synthesize them together. I don't see how you come to any other conclusion. Okay? This day became known as the Lord's Day, became the primary Christian day of assembly. Now, Acts 20 in verse 7. Let's look at these. This is significant. And this, is, uh, this, this wasn't just invented by the Roman Catholic Church. Okay? <laughs> this was a practice in the book of Acts. This was a practice during the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And Scripture itself records it, calls it the Lord's Day. Although the Seventh-day Adventists dispute that. They say, well, it doesn't, Revelation doesn't say that it was Sunday. It doesn't say that it was the first day of the week. Yeah, okay. Um, what about 1 Corinthians 16, too? What about Acts 20 and verse 7? What about the pattern that we have throughout the, uh, the travels here where we recognize that Saturday was no longer commanded by Christians, but they sure used it in their evangelism outreach towards the Jews who were gathering in the synagogues on Saturday. It became a pretty easy custom for Christians to hit the synagogue on Saturday for their outreach and Jewish evangelism and then assemble themselves in their own gatherings the next morning. All right, that became the practice. find it interesting. Muslims went the other direction. They made Friday their holy day. And um, they didn't want the Jewish Saturday or the, or the uh, Christian Sunday. So they backed up to, uh, to Friday. And that's why Friday is when they always have their uh, Muslim uh, prayers and then their uh, calls to jihad. And it's always Friday afternoons and Friday evenings when a lot of the, the uh, violence takes place because they just got out of their, their preaching Friday afternoon. All right. <clears throat> Acts chapter 20, verse 7 says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. This, notice this seems to be a regularity here. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day. And he prolonged his message until midnight. Well, goodness. Why did everybody stick around for that? You know, if this day wasn't different, then you would think, all right, we, we broke bread already, but come on, I got to get to work. Right? I don't have all day for this. But they did have all day for this. Why do they have all day for this? Because this was a special day. Why is this day not like other days? Why is this a day that we have set apart? Why is this a day that I can listen to Paul all day long until even midnight? And uh, only one person went to sleep that whole time. That's great. I'm sad that it happened to be the guy sitting in the windowsill. <laughs> okay. No, you know what? I, I kind of suspect maybe there were other people that fell asleep too, just they weren't sitting in the windowsill. So it didn't become quite as obvious. Many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. Look at that. Again, gathered together. What does that tell you? Yeah, assembly. That tells you that they were gathered together. Dearly beloved, we have gathered together. It's not language that speaks of just a coincidence or an accident. It speaks of intentionality. That this is their gathering together. This is their assembly. They are congregating because they are a congregation. All right, so there's Acts chapter 20. Um, And then, of course... uh, it's kind of interesting. They didn't even stop then. Notice verse 11, when he'd gone back up, he had broken bread and eaten, talked with him a long while until daybreak, and then left. And they took the boy alive and were greatly comforted. So it wasn't just till midnight. It was all the way till daybreak. Interesting. All right. Let me wrap up the rest of these. My phone just beeped. That means it's 11 o'clock and uh, my ringer's back on. So now I'm at risk of having my phone ring in the pulpit. 
1 Corinthians 16, 2, Revelation 1, 10. I programmed my phone to never ring during Bible class, but maybe I should give it an extra five minutes just in case. On the first day of every week, every week, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. This is concerning the collection for the saints as I directed the churches of Galatia. So do you also. So why do the churches of Galatia, why do they assemble on the first day of the week? Why does Corinth assemble on the first day of the week? Why does Macedonia assemble on the first day of the week? They're all doing this. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. And so this fund is gathered on the first day of the week because that's when they're gathered on the first day of the week. And then finally, Revelation 1.10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. In the Spirit on the Lord's day. What is the Lord's day? Sunday, first day of the week, okay? Although, to be fair, there's no shortage of opinions on, you know, was that Christmas? Was that his birthday? Was that, uh, you know, unanimously uh, agreed from the early church on that the Lord's Day is Sunday. It is the first day of the week. It's why we no longer gather on Saturday. Okay? Not until the Adventists came along in the 1900s and said, hey, let's go back to that Saturday worship. Okay? Now, Christianity it wasn't invented by the Roman Catholic Church. On into the early church before the, uh, during the Apostolic Age, Sunday, day eight, was significant. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for this opportunity we have to, uh, to study today. Father, thank you for the risen Savior. Thank you, Father, that uh, we are not dead in our sins, that we walk in the newness of life. And I rejoice over how faithful you are to make these things clear to us. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.